Amen. We are in chapter three, moving quite rapidly. That's a joke, but uh, I love this book. We left off in verse six of chapter two. And I want to look over a couple of these verses I want, because I want them to be very clear for us. Verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul said, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. The Hebrew word is psyche. Some people say suke, but it's, it's been translated in the Hebrew of nefesh which often simply denotes humanity in its natural, physical existence, the the pure man or woman without knowing Jesus Christ, the unsaved man. There are people who are not now, nor have they ever been believers. They only know the wisdom of this age. Remember, Paul is running side by side with the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of God, and they have almost, the people in Corinthians have almost turned their backs on Paul who has birthed this church. And so Paul spends 18 months trying to bring them back in love because they think they have arrived, and what's so ironic about it, they think they have arrived by man-made wisdom. And Paul is telling them that's not the way to heaven. That, that might be okay for this world, but it's not okay for the next. It takes more than man-made wisdom. So why are you boasting about that? So he says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, moronic to him, nor can he know them. The only way the natural man can know Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior is to be drawn by the Holy Spirit, to be born again. That's the only way. He goes on to say, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual, and that's the majority of the Corinthians' problem They think they're, the the Greek word is pneumaticos. They think they are walking by the Spirit. They think they are constantly walking in the Spirit. But they're showing, their showing of that walk betrays them, all of the things they are doing. And that's why Paul is trying to correct them. Because if you're walking by the Spirit, you will allow room for others. You will allow others' mistakes knowing that you're just a man or a woman by the grace of God, that the Holy Spirit, he allowed him to come in you. So you're not quick to to judge people or any of those things. And the Corinthian church is doing all of those. Paul says, he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of Yahweh that he may instruct him? But we, and Paul is speaking of These Corinthians who are not even acting like brothers and sisters, I'm amazed at the grace of God. Then I look at my life, and I'm really amazed. Paul says, but we, including the uh, Corinthians congregation, have the mind of Christ. 
but they are not using it. And we'll get to that. So chapter 3, verse 1, he continues, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people. The beef, once again, with the Corinthians, the majority of the Corinthians, they think they are walking by the Spirit of God, and they are boasting because they are walking. They think they are walking in the Spirit of God. That word is pneumatico, and it means people of the Spirit. That's what they say. That's why Paul writes this letter, and he says, but he says, and I, brethren, when I got there, could not speak to you as to spiritual, but to carnal. That, that Greek word is sarkikos. And what it means is it's, it emphasizes especially the humanness of people. It's almost, you, you could say they're acting fleshly. I know y'all never get in the flesh, so you probably don't even know what that means. But these people in Corinthians, in Corinth, are saying they are walking by the Spirit. And Paul, who we know have the Holy Spirit indwelling him, said, but you're, what you do is betraying what, if you're walking in the Spirit, it doesn't make sense. And that's why he has come, and that's why he spends 18 months there to try to correct them. But as to carnal, as to babes in Christ, Paul had no choice. He had to confront them. They thought they were walking by the Spirit, but they were really, they were carnal believers. And, it's, and verse 2 says, I fed you with milk because you are carnal believers and not with solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive. And so Paul wants them to abandon their trust and their hope in Sophia. And Sophia is the wisdom of man because that's what they are boasting in, in Sophia, the wisdom of man. That's why it's so important. It's, it's just as important for Paul to confront these Corinthians who are boasting in human wisdom as it were when Paul was in Galatians and the Judaizers were coming in right after him and saying, hey, you don't need to be circumcised. You, don't have, you have to be circumcised. You have to follow all these dietary laws. It's just as bad. Paul sees it as that because once again, they are saying they are spirit-filled, but their actions betray them. And when we do that, I'll say, when I do that, when I say I'm walking in the Spirit, but I'm doing everything contrary to the Word of God, God has a problem with that. Because we're showing the unbelievers that your life does not have to be changed in order to be a Christian. And so it's very important to Paul here. That's why he says he feeds them with milk, instead of solid food. And for Paul, the gospel of the crucified one, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is both milk and solid food. That's what we need to understand. The milk is when they're first saved, you give them the kerygma, you give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have to understand that, that this man died on the cross for their sins, was buried but he comes back to life, and the only reason he comes back to life because there was no sin in him. He, he took our place as sinners, and so that is the kerygma, that is the gospel in a nutshell. And Paul said, you guys have gotten away from that. You guys are talking about the wisdom of man as if the wisdom of man could save you. 
when it has been nothing but the charisma, the gospel of Jesus Christ dying, being buried, raised up on the third day, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's what, if you're going to boast, that's what you should be boasting in. But they were boasting in the wisdom of man. And I'm reminded in Exodus 29, when Aaron and his sons were consecrated at the tabernacle door. Remember that ceremony? God brought them, come to the tabernacle. When they got to the tabernacle, they washed them with water. Ephesians says you need to be washed with the water of the word. We need, that's why it's important that we are always constantly in the word so we can bathe off the filth of the world when we go out in that. But they bring them to the door. And then verse 20 tells us this. He says, then you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of their right ear. Be careful of what you hear. If people are gossiping, if people are doing all those things in your group, the best thing to do is get away from them. We should be careful of what we hear, the music we listen to, and all those things. It has an effect on us. So he says, put it on the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of their right hand. Be careful what you allow your hands to handle. We are sanctified. We are consecrated by the Lord. And on the big toe, big toe of their right foot, what about the places we go? Are they sanctified places? And that's what he's talking about. Now that we are sanctified, we have been placed in Christ, and we walk, and, and he's holy. The Holy Spirit inside of us is holy. And it matters, you guys, how we live. I imagine all the time, because I'm, I'm not perfect, but when I blow it, it's, it almost seems as if the Holy Spirit is just, Jesus is just in me saying, I don't like where you are. I don't like what you're doing. Corson says this, Christ in us, now that he's in the believer, it's like when we go home, I kick off my shoes, I get in my lazy boy chair, and I, I'm relaxed. And that's how Jesus wants, wants to be that he lives inside of us. Are we doing the things that make him relax? Or is he squirming and saying, I really don't like what you're looking at. I really don't like what you're hearing. I'm uncomfortable here. So we have to remember we are holy to the Lord. He's paid a great price for us. Paul says, you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able. And what he's trying to do is move them, move the Corinthians from a fascination with Sophia, because Sophia has made them think that they are above the Apostle Paul and the other believers. And he's trying to bring them back to the, to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. The problem is, it's not on Paul's side because he's preaching the gospel. The problem is on their side. They think that Sophia, the wisdom of the world, can bring them into it. Because when we get to uh, chapter 15, Paul begins to speak on the revelation, on, 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 on the resurrection. And these guys 
who are following Sophia, they already think they've been resurrected. They think they're living on a different plane. That's how confused they are by man's wisdom. And Paul is having to tear all of that down. The problem turns out, it's not the message. Paul comes in and he preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. But the message is falling on deaf ears because they have went away to Sophia. Verse 3 tells us, that's why Paul says, for you are still carnal. And this is how he knows. He can say, you're, you're, because you're acting like it. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions, and all three of those things were going on in the church among you, are you not carnal? Sarkikos, dominated by the flesh, that's what he's saying, and behaving like mere men, like every other natural man. And these are, the, these are not the activities of someone that is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul has to confront them. Verse 4 tells us, for when one says, and this is what they're doing, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Paul says, are you not carnal? Are you not mere human beings? This is evidence that they are living a fleshly life. And what he means is, the Corinthians are behaving like they have not been redeemed by God's power. And so they're not, being, they're not living their lives in the spirit. They are boasting in their individual teachers as though they could belong to them in some way. Paul sets out the, these present analogy, analogies. That's what he'll do. And he's going to debunk their misconception regarding leaders in the church. Paul and Apollos and Paul does not give any blame to Apollos. And Apollos, same thing, does not give any blame to Paul. It's the, it's the Corinthian that are making them, oh, he's better, oh, he's better. And Paul is not putting up with any of it. And I have a sidebar here. Because it's often said or thought because these people are believers. Because he's speaking to a group of believers at the Corinthian church. Yet, they are carnal. Therefore, they think it's permissible to be a carnal Christian. They have it all wrong. I hope you guys don't think that. That's why Paul comes in and he puts them in check and he says, no. It's all right if you've just been born again and you slip here and you slip there. You're, you're a carnal Christian. But if you're a carnal Christian by the time, say you're saved at 17, and at 50, you're still doing the same thing, and people can label you as a carnal Christian. There's a problem. There's a problem. That's what Paul wants them to understand. At the beginning, when you first got saved, I gave you milk, and milk is the word of God anyway. He says, I wanted to feed you, give you uh, solid food, but you could not understand it. So I went back to the milk of the word. I, I gave you where you were at. But by now, Paul tells them, you should be, you should be progressing. If I have a, a kid and he's three years old and he's making a mess, I'll give him 18 months. And he's making a mess and he's using the bathroom and he does all those things. And you say, hey, that's what, he, that's what he's going to do. That's what he should be doing. But when he's 15 or 20, 
and still making a mess and using the bathroom on itself, there's a problem there. And that's what Paul is saying. By now, you guys should be walking upright, but you're not. And the reason you're, you're following the dictates and the wisdom of the world. So Paul is concerned. He birthed this church. Paul wants to present them as a, he says, as a chaste virgin, spotless. But they can't be that if they're following the wrong teaching. And so Paul is saying, you need to get back on track. You need to repent of your ways and follow Jesus Christ. Because that's the only way you will go to an eternal destiny. And I want to say this because he's correcting a false view of the church, of the Corinthians church. Although it might seem otherwise at times as we're reading this, that's what he's doing. The argument to this point has been dealing with the problems of Corinth, the strife in the church, strife being on the name of wisdom with their leaders as reference points. Since chapter one, Paul's argument has been the cross, God's wisdom, precludes all other man-made wisdom, including boasting in their leaders because that's what they're doing. And since this wisdom is available to those who have the spirit, because Paul says, you are my brothers, you are my sisters. So they were saved. And that's why the concern is they're saved, but they're acting as if they're not. Paul has to straighten them out. You should have known better. You should know that you're living an ungodly life. Instead, they have been carrying on to this point of the flesh, seemingly as those who have missed the meaning of the cross. Their quarreling represents the old ways, living as mere humans. But the real issue is their radically misguided perception of the nature of the church and its leadership, especially in the case the roles of church leaders. So he says in verse five, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? Are they just lords of some kind to whom you may, you've attached yourselves to? Paul, he tells them, but ministers, they're only ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. Apostles are servants. Just like anybody who is in leadership, we, we are here to serve we are, and Paul gives the analogy here of farm labors, and they have a task to do. But everything, the farm and everything on it belongs to God, and the Corinthians has forgotten that. And they're, because they are viewing things, the Corinthians are viewing things from below. They're following the wisdom of man. And we know man likes to, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. That's all man thinks of who's the best. Jesus said, if you want to be a servant, you have to be last. You have to put others before you. That's what our master says. And that's what, if we're true believers, that's what we should be doing. So by implication, they're boasting in mere human servants of the farm. And Paul says that's folly. In its own right, that's folly. Not only does there, are they boasting in Paul and Apollos, it's evidence that the Corinthians are mere humans, and therefore, they're not spiritual in the necessary sense. They've been saying they were spiritual, but once again, their actions show that they are not. It's belief 
And then it's behavior. They make one. But if you have belief and you don't have behavior, what I get, like, if you're born again and you mess up for six months, you just, you, you, you just don't understand now and things aren't right and the Lord is there and finally you come around, it took. You had real faith. You had the effectual faith, as the Bible calls it. But once again, if you, if you say you're born again and, and you've been walking the same way for 10 years, doing the same things, there's a problem. And Paul, that's why he has to call them on the carpet of this, because he loves them. He says in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And he's, he's not talking about conversion of individuals here, and it works the same way. He's speaking of the Corinthians church right now. You, that you is plural. He says, you are God's field. That's why he says that. And what the analogy does, it, it affirms the ministry of Apollos. He doesn't have any kind of beef with Apollos. He has a beef with the Corinthians for just uh, thinking that he's better than Paul. He says in verse 7, So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. And the analogy functions both to affirm Apollos from the perspective of their mutual servanthood. Paul, Apollos goes in, he teaches them right. Uh, Paul comes back, he teaches them right. Everything is fine there, but they are taking it wrong. Verse 8 says, now he, that's why the Holy Spirit tells us, now he who plants and he who waters are one. They have one purpose, as the NIV would say. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Those who the Corinthians are bickering only serve under God. And notice the first half of the verse, it emphasizes the unity. He says, now he who plants and he who waters are one. So Paul and Apollos, they agree on this, this individual labor. Then he says the second part is their diversity. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That's the ticket. We get a reward. Isn't God good? He saves us. He says, go and tend my field, and then he pays us for it. We might not receive it now, and a lot of time we receive things right now for laboring for the Lord. He's right there laboring with us. But in the end, he rewards us anyway. He's already given us salvation. He doesn't have to give us anything else, but he says, no. I want to reward you. I can't even begin to think of the rewards we might get. But he does that. He says, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Romans 14, 4 puts it this way. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. That, that verse, I love that verse. Because God is adamant, if it took, if you were sincere, if you really trusted your life to Jesus Christ, and that's in a covenant relationship, he says, you're going to stand. Don't listen to people when they say you're messing up, you're never going to do anything, you're never going to do this. 
God is saying you stand. He's in covenant with us. Now, I'm going to tell on myself a little right now. But I went to, and I love Jay Gyllenhaal, so I watch a lot of his movies. But I went to see uh, a movie called The Covenant. I think it was, it was Wednesday. But my point is, that movie was great. They were in, Jay Gyllenhaal was in Afghanistan, and they finally got him out. But the only reason he got out was a Afghanistanian who helped him get out. And this guy pushed him and pulled him and carried him over that tough terrain of Afghanistan. And, and finally, he brought them close enough to where the Americans could come in and save him. And then when he got home, Gyllenhaal says, there's a hook in me that won't let me forget about that man. His wife didn't want him to go back. His kids, he had two kids, didn't want him to go back. Nobody even was helping him go back till finally the military uh, complex said, okay, we'll, we'll take you in. That's all we can do is take you back, but you're on your own. He goes back, and this is based on a true story. They showed us the pictures. Save this man. And as they got on the plane to leave, they put up that word covenant. A great movie. And I said, that's what Jesus Christ does for every child of God. He's in a covenant with us. And no matter how we mess up and no matter what he has to pull us out of, he's in a covenant relationship. He's going to grab us. He's going to do the things it takes to get us out and to get us home. And so we just correlated that movie to Jesus. And, and Jesus has all the power in the world to do what he needs to do. So we're going to make it home. We need to keep praying, and we need to keep doing those things, and we need to walk correctly, but we're going to make it home. Romans 14.4 says this, Who are you, Paul says, to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's buildings. And the Corinthians, therefore, they do not belong to either Paul or Apollos, but God. That's who they belong to. And in the Greek, you, it, it, you cannot make a mistake on what he's saying. The Greek text emphasizes is all together on God. It says this, you are God's servants. We are God's field, God's building you are. So everything we use and everything that God has given us, it belongs to him. Paul is trying to get them to understand that. The emphatic words of what he, what he says, it's all under God. We have nothing. Everything belongs to God. And I emphasize that because many translations says that we are co-laborers with God. But we're not co-laborers. God has mercifully, graciously allowed us to be on his team. He owns everything. Everything is God's. The church, its ministry, Paul, Apollos, everything. That's why it's absolutely not permissible to say, I belong to Paul, since the only legitimate slogan is, we belong to God. Whatever form of ministry we might have at church, we have been divided for centuries. There can be no mistake as to the nature of servanthood. 
the kind exhibited by the Lord himself and his apostles. There's simply no paradigm for that. Paul points needs regularly to be understood for both clergy and laity. The church belongs to Jesus Christ and to him alone. And it ministers, its ministers must function in Christ's church in the posture of a servant. I thank God that we have plenty of good servants here. But every once in a while, I'll say, I shouldn't be taking out the trash. I'm the pastor. <laughs> I'm real, you guys. On a bad day, I say, then I, oh, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. This is your church. And that's what Paul is wanting the Corinthians to know. You don't run after any man. You don't run after the pastor or anything. You run after the Lord Jesus Christ. Servantship leader. Servant leadership is required precisely because servanthood is the basis stance of what Jesus did. He says in Mark 10, 44 through 45, and whoever of you desires to be first, Victor, shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That keeps me where I need to be. Paul now gives another metaphor. He gives a metaphor of a building. He says in verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. That's cool. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Paul changes his metaphors around from cultivating to building. And then he says, okay, I've laid the foundation. The foundation was laid by Jesus Christ. That's why he says no other foundation can be laid. There's one. And it's going to pass the fiery test. And then he shifts from imperishable stuff, Jesus Christ and him crucified, to their present brand of wisdom. That's what they're looking at. 1 Corinthians verse 17 says this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, remember Paul said that, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So let's go back to verse 11. For no other foundation, and he means foundation by the, the Sophia wisdom. And then I begin to think about, okay, you're talking about foundations and I started to think about all of these man-made religions. Christ has nothing to do with the Jehovah Witness. Jesus Christ, the, the Lord of the Bible, the only true Lord, has nothing to do with Mormonism. He has nothing to do with uh, Scientology and all these other man-made religions. And when I say man-made religion, once again, we're speaking of Sophia, the wisdom of man. That's why Paul, the Lord told Paul, I want you to go and preach the kerygma, the gospel. Nothing else matters. The foundation is Jesus Christ. The superstructure that comes off that foundation is us, saved human beings, and they must be related to the character. There it is, the character of the foundation, Jesus Christ. We must be related to him. If I say I built my life on Jesus Christ and I'm raised up and I'm living some other way, it's not the foundation problem. 
It's my problem. That's what he's telling these Corinthians. I love how 1 Peter says it, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Peter says, coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones, you're a believer now, you're living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him, who's placed their trust in him, by no means will be put to shame. Therefore, knowing all of that, to, who, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, their hope of eternal life is not going to be there. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word. He said disobedient twice. We should be obedient to the word of God. Jesus is not looking for uh, excellent people that never make a mistake. He wouldn't have chose me. But my lifestyle should be in a sphere of righteousness. Day in and day out, I must live righteously. It proves to who I am. That's why he says it here. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Verse 12, Paul says, now, if anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation is who? Jesus Christ. With gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, Paul simply affirms that these materials you build with, that doesn't make you more or less. People like to take that verse and say, if you build with gold, silver, precious stone, that's what you use, and that's going to go through the fire and it won't be burned up. That's true, but the material is not what Paul is looking for. The foundation is what counts. These six building materials, I believe Paul points less elsewhere. Here it is. I don't think he meant anything by gold or straw. The concern of the metaphor is not in this instance with the building as a structure in its own right, but with those who are doing the building. What are we using to build with? I'll agree this is a steady scale of descending value, but Paul's own use of the analogy makes no point of such. And he doesn't place emphasis on the value, the costliness of the three in contrast to the last three. If we look at Paul's own elaborations that follows verse 13 and 15, it picks up a singular theme. And that singular theme, namely, some material endures the fire while others are consumed. Paul's concern is, then is this, is not the individual items that you use, but if they're imperishable quality of some other against the others. So I argue that for Paul's gold, silver, and costly stones, he was thinking of the tabernacle when it was built how they used gold and silver and precious stone, the foundations of it and how it worked. And Sophia does not give you the gold, silver, and the stone. So Paul doesn't have some fabulous view in mind, but he could have Solomon's first temple there. 
He goes on to tell us in verse 13, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. There's a day coming. You know, I feel sorry for the hypocrite, especially the hypocrite who gets away with everything in this life. Everybody thought I was a Christian. I did the things that would make everybody think I was a Christian. I went to church. I went to uh, Wednesday service. I went. I even taught. And I have everybody fooled. The hypocrite is the saddest person around because he forgets to put in that equation the one who counts, God. And on that day, Everything will be open. But for him, it's too late. It's too late. And that's why Paul is harping on them. He says, each one work will become clear for that day. We'll declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And I used to think the fire was the fires of hell. But once again, Paul calls these Corinthians believers. I heard John Corson say one time, he says, I think that when I stand in front of Jesus, because the believer, he's not going to be judged from what he did. This is a gift of grace. We're saved by by Jesus Christ and his grace. But we're going to stand there for the works we have done after we've been saved. Did I live a Christian life? Did I I do the things the Lord had put on my heart? And Jesus is going to look. And he says, all of the things that he had for me, that I would have had for eternity, is going to disappear because I lived as a carnal Christian. And it must mean something if it's in the scriptures. It must be devastating to get there and to see all that stuff of the hypocrite melted away. But at least he was on the right foundation. That's what Paul is saying. But it matters. It matters how we live. Because he goes on to say, and we will find it in chapter 6, if I'm a little child, if I stunt my growth at two years old, and I'm 32, and I'm still acting like the little child at two, well, come on, common sense tells you I'm not who I think I am. So there's a line of demarcation there. God gives you leeway. He's a gracious God. It's not his his desire that anyone should perish. So he gives you time, and that's what Paul is saying. Hey, you've got time. You're babes in Christ. By now, though, I should be able to feed you milk. But you're still not able So I don't know if the building would come down in Corinth or not. Those that were living that way, did they go to heaven? You see my point? It matters how you live. God is gracious. He's long-suffering. It's not his desire that anyone should perish. But I do know these dudes have been fed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul calls them brethren, but also Paul is warning them, you cannot continue to live like this. I'll give you a a good example. 
I'll give you an example of my life. When I got saved, I would still go out and drink and party and do all those things. And Pastor Terry, a Messianic Jewish Fellowship, he says, hey, let's, let's go get something to eat. And he sat me down and he opened the book up to Corinthians and Galatians. Do not be deceived. I wish I could find it right now, but I know most of it. And then, he, and then Paul, by the Holy Spirit, started naming things, sexual immorality, this and that, and this and that. I think he names nine different things, and he couldn't name more. He says, do not be deceived. Those who practice these things, they are not going to enter the kingdom of God. And he gave that book Bible to me and put it there, and I just started crying. I said, you're right. I've got to do what I'm supposed to do. That's the line that we walk, you guys. I'm not saying not, you're, you're going to make mistakes. But are you trying to live a holy life? Or have you just turned your back and say, I'm just going to live any way I want to anyway? That's what Paul is telling these Corinthians you should be fearful of. You can't speak. You can't. So what if you're speaking in tongues? and prophesying, and all those things, but you're not living a godly life. That's the whole message here. God is long-suffering, but that's the whole message. That's what Paul is saying here. First Peter, I love this verse, chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, remember that, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Every day we live, every day we hop out of that bed, we, what are we building on that foundation of Jesus Christ? That's the question. Can you stand in confidence on that day? But if you build right, you can. Not that you live a perfect life. Mr. Corley used to tell me all the time when I would ask him, are you saved? And I think the Lord got that and stuck it in my heart. And and I know he was a godly man. And this is what he says. I'm living to be saved. That's what it is. That's what it is. I'm living to be saved. We must walk. Get mad if you want to. I'm telling you what the word of God says. James tells us this. You must walk. God is there to help us walk. And he gives us grace during all that time. But we are believers. We must understand that. And we've been saved by grace through Jesus Christ. Jesus' eyes, I tell you, The flame of fire, he said, all of those rewards that you had, if you don't live a holy life down here, will be burned up. But I want you guys to live a holy life. He says in verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on, it endures, he will receive a reward after the fire has tested it. Matthew 25, 37, 40 says this, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly or verily, verily, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Paul says in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. There it is. Yet so as through the fire. I don't want to be saved through the fire. I want it to be if I have to lay on my deathbed, if he gives me time and I lay there, I don't want to have to worry about how I lived. Did I leave a holy life? Did I lead that holy life? Did I walk close with the Lord? And that's what Paul is saying. Not, 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 not Paul. That's what the Holy Spirit is letting, letting us understand. It matters how we live. You can be the greatest teacher. You can be the greatest singer. You can be the greatest janitor. It does not matter. Are you in love with Jesus Christ? Because if you love him, Victor, you will obey him. And that's what it boils down to. And that's what the Corinthian church is not doing. They're talking a good game, but they're not following up with the walk. He says in verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? So first and foremost, we know that this Corinthian church they're believers, but Paul is warning them. They, they, they are letting Sophia in, and it's going to ch change their destination. He says in verse 17, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Let me read that again. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. So no matter what they're teaching you, Paul is saying, let no one deceive you. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, in this world, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness. There it is again. It's moronic with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. Verse 18 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. I want to stop right there for a second. I want to make sure I read that right. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. How could it be that God created two genders and now we have about 18 now? That's, that's the wisdom of the world that the world expects us to follow in line and get in lockstep with. But we can't, and we don't hate on people, but we've got to ride with thus saith the Lord. Man in his perverse heart and the wisdom of the world, they have put this together, and it comes straight from hell. And we love them, and we can love them, but we must speak the truth. God's word is truth. And as long as we stand with God's word, we will be on the side of truth. 
That, that's the only thing that matters. He says, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, and he will. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile, they're vain, they're devoid of truth. Therefore, I've said all this to say this, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. You know, then I'll close. You guys know I love, love watching the news. And it's, it's been going on about two months now. They're, they're trying to get, what's that app, application that so many people have on their phone? TikTok. They're trying to ban TikTok. And I'm saying, ban it. Ban it all. I don't care. It, it, it's helpful. The wisdom of the world, but you have people fighting that it shouldn't be banned. I guess there's some good things on it. It depends on what you look and scroll to, I guess. But it's hurting our kids. And we should be more concerned with our kids than anything else. It's hurting them. It should be banned. But that's the wisdom of the world. How can you see people just jumping off the cliff, descending in hell, and not wanting to do anything about it? Well, there's a couple of good things that you can do with TikTok. I'm sure there is. But you can do it with some other app. So why are you so in an uproar if you ban TikTok? It's the wisdom of the world. That's what Jesus and his children, that's what we wrestle with. Oh, there might be some good in TikTok. I'm sure there is. But we're doing more harm with it than what's good. And it's worldly wisdom for all things are yours, Jesus. Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. All Paul is saying, and the worship team can come up, all Paul is said in that one chapter, there's going to be a judgment day. And once again, I don't want y'all running out of here saying Victor said this. Let me give you the truth. There's a judgment day, but the believer, he's not going to be judged. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But he's saying, if you're my son or daughter, live like it. Live like it. That's what he's saying. And that's what he means. And that's what Paul is getting out to the, to the Corinthian church. Hey, y'all are young and all, all but and you, you, you should be walking now, but you're still crawling. You're still babies. And that's okay for a little while, but it's not okay forever. God is gracious. I know no one more gracious and long-suffering than God. When I was in a, the hospital in an emergency, I had a dream, and, 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 I, and the, I knew I was in the hospital, and I was laying on my back, and I looked to the right, and I said, what's that? And, it, and every night, it would come to me, and I, and I said, what's that? And then I finally said, that's Balfamet. That's a... That's a a demon they used to worship 
And he wasn't in the room, but he was outside the door. And I said, Lord, are you trying to, are you telling me something? And I saw people coming to the door and their life was just going on. And I was inside a glass room and people were just living. I said, hey, come here and talk to me. But I was gone and they couldn't talk to me. And I said, Lord, okay, I got to live for you. No excuses. He's been gracious to me. He's been long-suffering to me. And that's the way he is with everyone. But it matters how you live. I don't believe I can say I'm a Christian. Matter of fact, I just put belief in. I'm just used to saying that. But I know. I know. And the reason I know, because this Bible tells me so. I cannot say I'm a Christian and live any kind of way I want to. I'm self-deceived if I think that. You're self-deceived if you believe that. I've read it many a time, not boasting, commentaries on it, everything on it. And just a natural common sense, really, with the Holy Spirit indwelling me. I have no excuse. I have no excuse. God's been gracious. Do I believe he's able to keep me? Yes, he is. But I've got to walk. I might slip and fall down. Keep walking. I might slip and fall down. But at least I'm going in the right direction. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about just going away and living life the way I want to and think I'm going to heaven. That's not going to happen. Get mad. Get upset. I'm telling you like it is. Mr. Corley told me that 90-something-year-old man again, he said, I knew a man named Stackhouse. I think he lived in, in uh, Ohio. He would always, I, I used to say, why are you telling me this, Mr. Corley? He said, I knew a man named Stackhouse. He would say this, save many a souls, but lost his own. I said, what happened? What, what, what? He said he used to chase women and all that stuff. Everybody knew it. He saved many souls, but lost his own. Why, why did he lose his own? Because he wasn't walking and he didn't walk. God is not looking for perfection. We would all be in hell. But he's wanting people to run with him. Best as our ability will allow it. He knows we're going to make mistakes. He's paid the price for those. Let's pray. Father, Father, I'm, I'm so thankful that you've been long-suffering with me. I know you are a long-suffering, merciful God. But Lord, you didn't save us to live any way we want to. And you're not looking for perfection. I want to make that clear. But you're looking for those who love you that they would surrender and allow you to have your way in their lives. Lord, I pray that we would, as Paul will say, examine ourselves and make sure we're in the faith. And if not, call us to where we need to be, Lord. Call us to where we need to be. I pray for everyone here and those who are online, Lord, that you would make yourself known in their lives. 
And I ask all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.